0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Like 10 out there? Good evening and welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm John Boland, President Emeritus of KQED Public Media and a member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors, and I'm very pleased to be your moderator for our conversation with Malcolm Nance. Malcolm Nance, as you know, is a best-selling author and media commentator on terrorism, intelligence, insurgency, and torture. He is a former United States Navy Senior Chief Petty Officer specializing in naval cryptology, and with 34 years experience in the field is one of the nation's leading counterterrorism and intelligence consultants. He's also the author of the new book, The Plot to Betray America, How Team Trump Embraced Our Enemies, Compromised Our Security, and How We Can Fix It. He, Malcolm has written a number of other books, as you know, but I want to mention two of them. The Plot to, a, to Hack America, How... Putin's cyber spies and WikiLeaks tried to steal the 2016 election, which was published in 2016 just before the election, and the plot to destroy America, how Putin and his spies are undermining America and dismantling the West, which was published last year. In his new book, The Plot to Betray America, Mr. Nance argues that President Trump has committed the greatest act of treason against the United States by betraying the oath of office for personal gain. The plot to Betray America contains in-depth interviews with intelligence analysts and insiders that substantiate Trump's ties to Russia, while also providing solutions about how to salvage America's security. We're very excited to have him here with us tonight, as these topics are obviously very much in the news. (laughs) Please join me in welcoming Malcolm Nance. Now, I'm sure everyone would like to hear about Ukraine uh, and the current impeachment process, and we will get to that later in the program. In your book, which you completed just as the Mueller report was being released, you detail the many ways you believe President Trump and those around him have betrayed his oath of office, the Constitution, and the American people but the current that runs through the book and the two previous books in the trilogy is Russia in general and Vladimir Putin in particular. And I have one big broad question to start us off and you'll have to read the book to get the full answer, but I'm going to ask, ask Malcolm to give us the short answer. Why do you believe Donald Trump is in the pocket of Vladimir Putin and how did he end up there?
1: (laughs) That's a really good question. You know, I get this question all the time, and I, I generally get it from conservatives who, as, 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 uh, who find it quite fascinating to think that Donald Trump is anything other than, you know, the handsomest, smartest, most, most virile, and uh, intelligent person to ever grace the White House. I actually had somebody who said he's better than George Washington. Well... <laughs> I'm a little bit of a scholar of the American Revolution, and and let me tell you, he is is no George Washington uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but that's the world they live in. Um, The world I live in is one of empiricism. It's it's a world where, um, as part of the U.S. intelligence community, and certainly as someone who started out as a cryptologist, um, the numbers have to add up. I have to show you my work. And, you know, we should be able to not only replicate it, but the information that we have should be of such import that we actually kill people with it. And so what I do is very, very serious. And all I'm doing in these books is showing you uh, a version of how we do a national intelligence estimate or information as it's seen at the end user state. And that's why Plot to Hack America, the first book, um, was written so fast. I wrote it in five weeks. I delivered it on September 23rd, 2016, the exact same day the CIA was delivering an exact copy of my book, their version, to President Obama. Because we're not journalists. People say, well, you're a journalist. And I go, no, sorry, not one of those guys. Um, I just play one on TV. That's literally true. And as as an intelligence professional, though, I have a completely different way of looking at the world. I have a depth of knowledge and experience that is generally extremely classified, but we see patterns and ripples and currents in the world that a journalist would have to interview a lot of people for, and that's what led me to Russia. Um, I'm also, you know, I'm not, and I didn't start out as a Russia specialist. I'm a specialist in the Middle East and the counter world, but I started in the Cold War. Uh-huh. And so as a Cold War baby in the intelligence community, everything was Russia. You know, you go to Libya, Russians. You go to Egypt, Russian Navy in the Gulf of Solomon, Russian intelligence in Cairo. You go to Syria, Russians. You go to Istanbul, KGB everywhere. You go to Naples, they would warn us. They would read to us. This is what you're going to find if you go to the market in Naples. The KGB is looking for radio men, cryptologists, or anyone who that they can turn. As, for those of us who are all of a certain age, which is just about everybody here. And that's a good thing, because I, li- I like talking to adults. <laughs> Give yourself a round of applause. Those of us who are of a certain age, we remember that we had a strategic adversary who wished us ill, who wanted American democracy and democracies around the world. They really believed that the clash of ideologies of Soviet communism was better than you know, democratic republicanism, and that they could break it, and that they would break it through whatever nefarious means that they would do. Those operations went from 1917 to 1989 over 70 years where they went at us. But one thing that I found as in that common thread of those of us who served in the Cold War, that by the time Vladimir Putin became president of Russia, after he left the KGB, because he is a KGB officer, and I know I've been to his office in Dresden, Germany, uh, but as a baby KGB officer, this man's job was to manipulate people. It was to turn people against their own country, whether they were businessmen coming from West Germany, whether it was someone visiting their aunt who happened to live on the eastern side of the Iron Curtain. Vladimir Putin learned to work people. And so in my world, we were taught constantly to identify KGB operations, constantly to know when you were being recruited. Um, We have an acronym, M-I-C-E, MICE. It stands for the way that you turn a person from a, a, a normal person, uh, a loyal patriot, into a traitor. And the first thing that they always dangle in front of you is money. And then they test you to see whether you have the ideology of, the, of this country or if you can be switched to the ideology. And if you can't, it's okay, because money always works. Um, then you have the letter C for co-option, coercion, or compromise, right? Whether they co-opt you by getting you just to feel that you should work for them with that money, or they co-opt, or they compromise you with blackmailable information, or they coerce you through physical harm, threats of physical harm. Finally, the E stands for ego. (laughs) And they all, you know, These are universal recruiting tools. This isn't strictly KGB or CIA. They're universal. Ego or excitement. And 99% of the time, it's ego. And, you know, one of the the, the great KGB officers uh, who who defected to the West once said, you know, the KGB doesn't recruit from the left. Because people who are from the left, they will betray you. And when they betray you, they will betray you with credibility. Because... (laughs) Because they come from your world. So they they didn't like people who were in Communist Party of the United States. The people they went after were conservatives. Because conservatives were generally about money, ego, and you can always blackmail them. And most of the time they didn't care about blackmail, they cared about money. And so some of the people who were some of the greatest spies in the United States history... Uh, You know, Aldrich Ames of the CIA, the man whose job it was to hunt down KGB officers, did it for money, almost a million dollars. There was a program, there was a guy um, who worked at the National Security Agency across the hall from where I was at. And he retired, but he took the entire details of this program with him. He sold out a multi-billion dollar program, which the lives of men and women were on the line every day for $36,000, okay? Apparently, this works, but you also have to be able to read the human condition. You also have to be able to read the psychology of your intended victim. And to do that, you have to have the mindset of a spy. And Vladimir Putin was a spy. And more than a spy, you know, he was a human intelligence officer, which means turning you, manipulating you, or letting you talk yourself into a situation in which he will be able to use that against you. So this constant theme throughout my books of Russia is because Russia is still the strategic adversary that we all knew back when the Soviet Union existed, and the only thing that's happened is, I like to tell this little story, this is apocryphal, but I'm sure it really happened, so, you know, you know what they say? This is an old legend I just made up.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the guy came up from maintenance with, you know, a screwdriver. And he went up to the headquarters of the KGB. And he took down the letters K and G. And then he put up the letters F and S. And that's how the KGB became the FSB. Right? And I got into a fight with Russia today. Because I had made the mistake of saying Vladimir Putin was the first direct was a director of the KGB. And so Russia Today thought that was hilarious because it was. It was a it was a faux pas. Vladimir Putin was not a KGB director. He was the director of the FSB. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I I I they tweet this out, and any time that you get the attention of the Russians, well, I've done my job. So I can, I can retire. So, But the best way to get back at a national, you know, nation-state information organ that is controlled by Russian spies is to mock them because they want to be taken very seriously. And as far as I'm concerned, Russia today is Pravda. We all, who are of a certain age, remember Russia's newspaper from the Communist Party was Pravda, which meant the truth, which universally meant... It's a lie. So Pravda was like the biggest joke in the world. And Russia today has figured out that they have to pretend that they're a news agency and sort of like BBC and hide all their propaganda with a bunch of useful idiots and even have an American channel. But Russia today made this thing saying MSNBC's terrorism and Russia expert says Vladimir Putin was director of the KGB. You know, like, ha, 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 ha. And I thought, okay, I'm up against the evil empire now, right? <laughs> Which, I'm sorry, they're still evil, okay? But they're just evil with money. So I said, okay, let's, it, I'm up against the KGB. I'm up against uh, the Russian, Russia today now. So I responded... I appreciate Russia today correcting the mistake that Vladimir Putin was the director of the FSB. It's hard to mistake since he was a KGB officer. And then I went, hashtag KGB or FSB is KGB. (laughs) So now when that thing started to move around the internet and started getting tens of thousands of likes, now it had exposure to like a million, two million readers. And what happened was... FSB as KGB started to trend on Twitter. That is not how you want to do your propaganda, right? You don't want to spread your
0: opponent's hashtag. And that's what the Russians did. So it sounds like Putin is still using what he learned at the KGB as president. Right, because the
1: only thing that's changed in Russia is the ideology and the injection of lots of dirty, dirty money. Russia is awash with billions of dollars. You recall when when Putin returned uh, from his KGB days in Dresden, he went to become an aide to the mayor of St. Petersburg at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union. What they did was they sold the city. And when I say sold the city, I mean every apartment, every item in the Soviet Union was owned by the state. So if you want that theater chair that you're sitting in, uh, what they would do is they would make up a false deed, and they would now privatize it. The city of St. Petersburg would privatize that chair and then they'd sell it to you for $5 and then you would sell it to someone for $10 and they'd get a cut of that. And then soon everything is sold that belonged to the state. They would sell off airports, submarine bases, fire trucks, everything had to be privatized. And that's how they made their billions of dollars. But more than that, Putin bought the, the used his ex-KGB friends and the police state in St. Petersburg to control the Russian mafia. And that's who you, they're a professional class of criminals, okay, and that is his true claim to fame. Which is why Boris Yeltsin, when he saw him do this, he said, I need to bring this guy to Moscow. And he made him director of Russian intelligence. And as his first great act of Russian intelligence, when Boris Yeltsin was being investigated for corruption, by a prosecutor who was sort of you know, sort of the equivalent of the attorney general and who was looking into Yeltsin and his wife and his, his daughter and the monies that they were making, Vladimir Putin somehow managed to engineer him being videotaped with two prostitutes in a hotel. And then, this is the best part, when the videotape was released, the director of the FSB determined live on television that that video was legitimate. He blackmailed him in public, right then and there. Suddenly, he lost his job, all investigations went away, Boris Yeltsin was absolved of everything, Vladimir Putin was made the prime minister by Boris Yeltsin, which is the equivalent of like the vice president, and then became the president of Russia, and of course, pardoned everybody. I mean, that's the way a spymaster works.
0: And so where, where does Trump come into the Putin
1: relationship? <laughs> I'm just talking about the guy who has the leash, right? So if we're talking about the dog that needs to be walked, well.
0: Let's talk about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I'm only saying that because that's the title of chapter three. (laughs) So um, where that comes in is because Donald Trump has been on the Russian radar for a very, very long time.
0: I don't think most people
1: realize. Most that. people do not realize that. And I can't take credit for this. It was reporting done by Luke Harding in The Guardian, uh, Build Magazine in Germany, DE, and Czech 24, which is a TV channel in Prague, acquired all of the records of Czech intelligence, the subordinate intelligence agency to the KGB, uh, and required 10 years of surveillance reports from Czech intelligence when he was married to Ivana Trump. And this has also been reported in, you know, various newspapers. Uh, Craig Unger wrote about it in the House of Putin, House of Trump. It's very well documented because this television channel has all the boxes of their reports. And the worst part was when Ivana Trump was in the United States, she would call home to her family. She would send letters to her family. She would communicate in various methods. She would come home and they monitored all of it because Donald Trump was not just an American personage; She was a rich American. And again, for those of us who were a certain age, we all remember that that was behind the Iron Curtain, the Czech Repu- what is now the Czech Republic, was behind the Iron Curtain, and they did not have money. The Warsaw Pact, the, you know, the, the entire Soviet satellite sphere was poor because, as we all know now, collective commun- you know, collectivism, communism just doesn't work. It can't make money off of that. Putin learned that lesson. so. What they did was they monitored that family for 10 years. When Donald Trump came to the Czech Republic, they had spies around him. The senior reporting authority to Czech intelligence was Ivana's father. Well, at that time, you either reported or bad things happened to you. This is the Iron Curtain, the evil empire that Ronald Reagan talked about, that many of us served uh, against, and they were. They, communism and the communist system and their totalitarian police states were totalitarian. It's just something that's a fact of life. And many people, certainly on the conservative side, seem to have forgotten that fact of life. So Trump was under surveillance. And then in 1987, he somehow got the brilliant idea that he wanted to go to the Soviet Union, Uh, He had had put a full-page ad in the New York Times asking George Herbert Walker Bush to be his negotiator for nuclear weapons reduction talks. And because he said, hey, I'm I'm the big Art of the Deal guy, I want to do something. But to a trained spy, which would not have been Vladimir Putin, but it would have been the entirety of the KGB, they would have said, wait, 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 this one, this one, (laughs) this one has an ego. He wants to do something that is outsized, something that's beyond his capacity. He also wants to make contact with us as a nation state. Team meeting, how do we we work this guy, right? If there is a report that is sitting somewhere, there there is a human intelligence analytical report about Donald Trump, there must be, because he went to the Soviet Union, he was feted by diplomats, United Nations personnel, the foreign minister of Russia, All of these ego-massaging personalities that were there for him and his money brought him to the Soviet Union where he wanted to do Trump Tower Moscow. This is 1987. But another thing that people didn't know was, due to Czech intelligence intercepts of his phone communications, he had been expressing an interest to run for the presidential platform against George Herbert Walker Bush. So now Russia knew something that 99.999% of Americans did not know. Now he talked about it, granted, but they knew the level of of interest from his wife. They also knew his actual um, income because she had reported that to her father. Um, So this is where foreign intelligence now is building a package about you. And Donald Trump when he went to the Soviet Union, was hosted by Intourist, which was the Russian tourist agency, which was a directorate of the KGB. Everybody who went there was under KGB control. All the nice tour guides were KGB affiliates. The hotel you stayed in was bugged and monitored. You can actually go, if you go to Estonia, they have a hotel there, I believe, where you can actually go to the room where they monitored every room. This is the environment Donald Trump is now in, and it's not like he doesn't have a big mouth and didn't talk while he was in his private room. (laughs) This is intelligence collection on a target that you don't know if you're gonna do anything with, and then the Soviet Union collapsed. But those documents weren't thrown into a furnace, right? That guy from maintenance came up with the letters K and G and took them down, and then they got a bigger budget, a much, much bigger budget. And then when Vladimir Putin became director of the FSB, they got a multi-billion dollar budget on power with ours, and they now have the power of Western money. When Donald Trump would later come back on the circuit, he would come back as, as what I call a useful idiot, what the Soviets would call useful idiots. People just don't know what they're doing. They're just doing it for themselves, but they're being helpful to you. And then later on would become an unwitting asset when people started to liquidate their apartments or their, their, their stolen cash and were buying condominiums in New York. And as Donald Trump Jr. said, a, a dis- disproportionate portion of our portfolio comes from the Russians. Why, yes. And where did they get all that money? It didn't just spring up from the ground. Things had to be stolen, liquidated, and then that money was being Cleansed through the global apartment and villa and you know lake, front hotel world. that's what they were buying. They were putting that money into, into land, real estate, and that real estate would appreciate over a few years, then they would sell it and they would cleanse it, and that's how you got, you know places uh, you know, in Southern Florida and New York City, and that's why they loved Donald Trump, because at that point he didn't care where the money came from, right? That made him unwitting, but he was still helpful to them. We still don't know the level of helpfulness. And But if I'm Vladimir Putin, and I am now the leader of Russia, ex-KGB spymaster, and I see Donald Trump is on one of the most popular shows in Russia, a show called The Apprentice, and I think, wait a minute. Where have I heard that name before? And he goes, that's the kind of American we like and somebody says you know we have a file on him down at uh, dir- you know the first directorate of the KGB and he'll go oh, bring that file to me and he would have like any good any good ex intelligence officer would have had a team scrub this person and give him a human intelligence analysis right there now like my first book plot to hack america this is an intelligence projection we don't know if this happened but it had to happen because we see all of the other dots in that constellation that spell out betrayal, right? It has to happen because no one worth his salt from the KGB who is now running a country who's a multi-multi-billionaire, who is now talking and saying he admired Donald Trump and would later go on and say, yes, he used his country to help Donald Trump, would not go into the archives of the KGB and review now 25 years of intelligence collection on this man. And what he would get, he would get a psychological profile that says, this man is buyable. He is purchasable. And we know that because the Saudis learned that very quickly, right? This is a man who loves luxury, he loves guilt, he loves avarice. And that is the most dangerous type of, of person, because there is a pool of money in this world that is higher than countries, passports, and loyalty to any flag. And that's the oligarchy that exists around the world. I call them the globigarchy. Every country has them, right? The people who, they don't ever handle their passport, their secretaries, or their secretary's secretaries handle their passport. I have this little, little trick that I always, I always use. Has anyone ever heard of a small place in Spain called Puerto Banus? Anybody? Okay. Well, my daughter has. <laughs> but Puerto Banus, if you don't have a mega yacht with a helicopter pad on it, you're generally not going to know where Puerto Banus is. It's the home of the global oligarchy. It's just one of the thousands of places that only the super, super, super rich who are higher in money, prestige, and stature than the President of the United States would know about or could afford to go there. Donald Trump right now does not have the boat that could afford to go to, you know. An aircraft carrier would not be allowed in because it's not prestigious enough for them.
0: A, a question that, that isn't necessarily in the book but and, and is kind of conjecture, but what, 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 is, what is the relationship now? In other words, is there direct contact or are they just... Working him. Oh, well, we
1: know there's direct
0: contact. But I mean direct
1: oh, no, instructions. We, well, we don't know that. As a matter of fact, I've, I've, been, I've been pushing the hashtag, you know, release the Putin tapes. Because, well, I mean, we, we found out that phone calls are not what they say they are, and that they've been hiding these transcripts inside a secret, by the way, the computer that they, ha- these, they hid these uh, transcripts for the Ukraine in was for clandestine service real name covert intelligence operations, all right? It's the kind of computer I wouldn't even be allowed in. And they were hiding stuff in it because it takes a top secret code word, special, 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 special access program clearance just to have a password to get in there. And that's a good place to hide it. So what else is hiding in there? Well, maybe the entire real relationship between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin is hiding in there because we know they call each other, we know they call each other without only a translator and no other staff in the room. So this relationship, if I were a counterintelligence officer, which I'm not, I'll I'll leave that to my friends, Frank Fogluzy and Asha Rangappa, to really analyze, I would be very suspicious of any American who has had this history with the Russians, has money flowing into their background, who, cannot seem to say a negative word about Russia, adopts their entire foreign policy platform to the point where he abandons American bases and directly orders them turned over to the Russians, i would be a little suspicious.
0: (laughs) And so, so obviously they have a mutually beneficial relationship.
1: Well, unlike any president of the United States has ever had. Right. To the point where, you know, people ask me all the time, is he a Manchurian candidate? No. The Manchurian candidate... At least served in the military, right? So. (laughs) (laughs) And he's the kindest, bravest, gentlest man I've ever met in my life. Um, But no, Donald Trump is not a fabrication of Russia. Donald Trump is a fabrication of Donald Trump. And what he has is he does not understand, or he does not care, or he knows and really doesn't care, or maybe even admires the fact. Russia has put a framework around him in which his worldview emanates through Russia's worldview, and this is called meta-narrative framing, and it is an intelligence technique that the Russians are masterful at, and we know it because Donald Trump is president, and that's what they did to America. They meta-narrative framed this country to the point where 30% of this country will not believe anything they see before their own eyes or that does not come from their worldview, they refuse it outright, which by the way is a Russian intelligence technique to change the mindset of populations. And they view it as a way of defeating a a, a country without even invading them by changing and recrafting their worldview. So I often say the Democratic National Committee wasn't the important thing that was hacked in 2016. They hacked the mindset of the American public by exposing 180 million of the 320 million Americans in this country to their propaganda, which was as simple as this. Trump good, Hillary evil, Russia's okay too.
0: You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. that 30 percent, I'm assuming you would posit are what's controlling the elected and appointed officials that surround Trump oh, that yeah. don't seem to budge. Yeah. Well, you know, people always ask me this, and they
1: say, are the Republicans in the Senate and the House, are they just afraid of their constituents? I, I don't I know I, I thought that early on. I thought, wow, that's the strength and the anger and the hatred that that emanates within what is now considered the conservative base, which is fascinating to me, because I was conservative for a good part of my, my life, but a Colin Powell-style conservative, right? National security hard, socially liberal. That brings me out somewhere in the middle right. Me and Colin Powell are on the far left, according to these people, right? I mean, we, you know, what was conservative is now not even acceptable in America anymore. What they are is they are, their worldview is Trumpist. So... With that worldview, anyone who does not comply can no longer be part of their game. And what I suspect now, now that I've met many, many more, I speak to them, I've spoken to people in government, in power, Republican congressmen and senators, I just think that they feel it's refreshing that they can now reveal who they really are. Mm. That they, they have always been of this world, and it's just... The strictures of common decency and niceties and common sense and you know fairness, I don't, that is not part of the authoritarian makeup. That is now Donald Trump's Republican Party. And I'm sorry, they are authoritarians. They are autocrats. There was the famous quote by the woman earlier this year who said at a Trump rally, I never thought that I'd be saying this, but if we have to have a dictator, I want it to be Donald Trump. Okay. I remember there was this time in America between, I don't know, 1776 <laughs> and 2016, where we were always striving to make the American experiment better. Um, for those of you who, who don't know my family's history, my family has served in every war, every, every father and son from 1864 until now. My niece is still in the Navy. She was in combat off of Yemen a year and a half ago. We take this service to the nation thing very seriously. And my poor sainted mother had six of us in simultaneously. So just to give you an idea of sacrifice. But Why my great-great-grandfather and his brother ran away from slavery to join the 111 U.S. Colored Troops. Pretty easy to understand. They wanted to shoot some slave owners, but (laughs) officially in uniform, which is fun, but it just shows you they wanted to play within the system. Because I'm always asked, why do African Americans, why are they not angrier? Why are they not more, you know, the, the, the base electorate of the Democratic Party, why do they not want to tear the walls down? Because we have seen incremental progress is the way it is in America. We have to be fair, we have to compromise. And now, for some strange reason, the way it always has been is no longer operative. The word compromise is, is now a dirty word to people who support Donald Trump. They ridicule and despise people who say that. And so it's like the American experiment is grinding to a halt, and that offends me. It offends me deeply. It should offend anyone who loves this country. I was born in Philadelphia in a naval hospital, which means I had socialist healthcare from the minute I was conceived. (laughs) Because military healthcare, cradle to grave. Is the most socialist thing in America. And I love it. But, but the point is this. As a person who was born in the cradle of this nation, I have come to revere what it means to be an American. I mean, we, we are a nation of immigrants. A nation of natives. And for us African Americans, a nation of hostages. <laughs> and we have all stayed together. And it have embodied, incorporated, e pluribus unum, from many, one. And we mean it to the bottom of our hearts. But suddenly, what say you now, right? I mean, we have been challenged now with a body of our own nation that no longer believes that we are worthy of that. That America means one tribe in this nation will now rule the rest of you. Okay, it's offensive to me. And first off, that whirring sound you hear is our founding fathers turning in their graves. Because even as men of the Enlightenment, even who guys who, they were flaming hypocrites, right? I mean, all I got to say is Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. For you youngsters, <laughs> Google that. Because it's not in Hamilton except for one sentence. <laughs> but it's pretty hypocritical for a man who wrote, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, right? Like I say in the song, not women, and definitely not Sally Hemings. So, but they knew America would improve. They knew that they, a little at a time, their progeny and their legacy would be a more perfect union. And I, why I wrote this book, why I wrote these books, why I am not writing about ISIS's resurgency today, okay, and why I am now neck deep in having to, you know, spy-splain Russia's evil, nefarious intelligence activities is because I have a third of my country that views them as the center of decent Western white Christendom. I've been told that to my face. That they're better, you know, there's a t-shirt that I actually bought online that I saw on tele- on, on, uh, at a Trump rally. I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. I'm sorry, I, those words will never pass my lips. All right. I'd rather be an American than a Trump supporter. But I'll be a Trump supporter before I'll be anything other than an American. I will never, ever let this country down. No matter what your stripe is, whether you believe what I'm saying, I spent my entire life, my family spent their entire lives giving you the right to believe and say and think any stupid thing you want. (laughs) Right? I believe it. But you know what? There is a line. And when that line is, you know what? I think we should just smash the American experiment, and move on to what I call Trump's version of it, which is constitutional autocracy, where they have the fig leaf of the Constitution remains, the Bill of Rights gets selectively applied,
0: and we really are just an autocracy. So Ukraine, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) just switching gears a little bit, because because that, that comes up in the book as well. And, and, and you made the point in the book that there was enough in the Mueller report to impeach. Sure, That didn't happen. Now, impeachment process is underway with Ukraine. That goes back a long way too.
1: Yeah, it, it goes back as far as Paul Manafort. I mean, Paul Manafort, he, he, he and Roger Stone occupy a big piece of this book because they are dirty. And I do know I no longer have to make that an intelligence projection. because it has now moved itself into the courts, and the courts agree with my assessment (laughs) that Roger Stone and Paul Manafort are two criminals, which they are now both convicted felons. So, something is still working, right? At least at the, the base level. Paul Manafort and Roger Stone are dirty tricksters, And they loved this title. They called themselves this, you know? And Manafort literally sold his services to do dirty tricks to the pro-Moscow government in Ukraine in the the early 2000s, to the point where, now, this government was insanely dirty. Uh, Yanukovych, the, the president at that time, was stealing billions upon billions of dollars, and that's how he could have in his political party a secret black ledger book, in which they were paying Paul Manafort in cash all of this under the table money to do dirty tricks that led to a revolution in the Ukraine that by a by a popular uprising of people who wanted to live in within the European Union they wanted to break from the mold that Ukraine was Russian or that was under the Russian sphere of influence they wanted to root out corruption from this this from this president who was corrupt, and most importantly, they wanted to align themselves with NATO for protection. And Manafort's job was to throw a monkey wrench into that. In fact, he and in, in that party helped organize an anti-NATO protest in Crimea, which laid siege to a group of Marines, and, I, you know, and we're here in the Marine House in, in, in San Francisco, so it should be offensive to anybody who has ever said Semper Fi in their life, that Manafort and his cronies got a protest to where they were under siege by having rocks and bottles thrown at them until they could be taken out of Crimea safely. I mean, this is an American that was engineering activities against NATO, and if that required U.S. Marines to be, have rocks and bottles thrown at them by pro-Russia militias, so be it because he's getting paid in cash. And then he tried to you know, bring all that cash back to the United States and money launder it by buying a million dollars of suits, <laughs> right? We know they were just $10,000 worth of suits and $990,000 $990, was being handed back to him in cash. He was money laundering and that's how we got him, right? But Manafort's legacy was that someone and somehow, somewhere, someone thought He was the perfect campaign manager for Donald Trump, (laughs) being a dirty trickster criminal who had already engineered elections in the Ukraine, or in Ukraine. Sorry about the definite article there. So Donald Trump thought that this was a great guy to manage his campaign, and he was, until his dirty tricks became public, and then, of course, Trump didn't want somebody who was going to be dirtier than him, so he got rid of him. Roger Stone, in the meantime, was running secret activities with WikiLeaks and then, when brought to account, lied to the U.S. government about it because when Donald Trump was elected president, they all thought they were the masters of the universe, that they controlled the levers of American government. And this was where we enter in, Rudy Giuliani. And Rudy Giuliani's job, it appears, as early as two years ago, That's how long this may have gone on, that they knew at some point Trump would have to be reelected, and certainly within the last year they would go up against Joe Biden, and they decided simply, based on stories they were hearing from Konstantin Kalimnik, the the ex-Russian military intelligence officer who attended the Trump Tower meeting and who left the country and couldn't be interviewed by Robert Mueller, conveniently, that It wasn't Russia that hacked the DNC and that rigged the election. It was Ukraine, and not just any Ukraine, the pro-NATO, pro-Western Ukraine that did this, and that they did it to make Hillary president, which is the worst plan ever. (laughs) This is the fantasy world they're living in today, and every question that was asked was actually, as as Fiona Hill put it today, every time you made these statements, you are advancing a narrative that was crafted by Russian intelligence. Vladimir Putin and Viktor Orban, the pro-Putin head of Hungary, both are said to have mentioned this to Trump. Trump believes this narrative. He does not believe any of the U.S. intelligence agents, He does not believe the Senate intelligence reports, the House intelligence reports, and he definitely doesn't believe the Mueller report. He believes what a KGB officer and his lackeys told him was the truth. And now we have these two worlds happening. We catch Donald Trump going to, to the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, and saying, hey, that thing about CrowdStrike—you know what that meant? That's the crazy story that the DNC was actually hacked by secret Ukrainian government personnel to help Hillary Clinton. Someone explain that to me. Never mind. <laughs> All right, because it's—we have a very technical, um, analytical intelligence term that's used when we find that ground truth and facts as we collect them clash with an ideological belief that is non-viable. That term is. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and that story meets the analytical definition of crazy. All right? Every watch officer in the world who's listening to this is laughing now. So, but the facts are the facts as they exist. And so we also have Rudy Giuliani coming up with this fantasy that it was okay that, you know, that, that Burisma, this company... That Donald Trump, or I'm sorry, that Joe Biden's son was on, and he made like 50,000 bucks, which should be a surprise to Ivanka and Jared Kushner, who I believe made something like on the lines of $68 million last year. By the way, they're both U.S. government employees. Did you know that? They say they are, but that's what they are. How they could do that, yeah, without security clearances, right? How they could do that is amazing, but it got into Donald Trump's head through this, this Plot through Rudy Giuliani that you know Joe Biden uh, and his son were corrupt. They were also going to be the number one challengers. Joe Biden was going to be the number one challenger. So he just went and extorted the government of Ukraine. He just said, "We have all these weapons, right? This is what was paraphrasing, of course. He didn't say these exact words, but we have military aid to you. You are in direct armed combat with Russia." We have weapons which could change the face of the battlefield, the Javelin anti-tank missile, right? And when the only thing he left out of that transcript would be when he said, but we need a favor from you, though. And the only thing that was missing was, that's a nice country you got there. It'd be a shame if
0: something happened to it. But that was in the parentheses, right? Right. That reminds me, I, it, it, you mentioned this in the book, and it really resonated with me as a reporter who covered organized crime long ago, that the style of both Putin and Trump is really reminiscent of a mob boss. Oh, yes. Well, only if you consider Vladimir
1: Putin is Michael Corleone. I got to give him credit. I mean, you don't see anybody empty. You know, you don't see any indictments on that guy. Uh, Donald Trump is definitely Fredo.
0: <laughs>
1: and the so, problem is he knows that boat is out there on the lake taking him on the lake and he is trying desperately to coordinate with Michael not to go on the boat ride <laughs> watch the godfather all you guys who are under the age of 50
0: or google it and, and obviously in the last part of the book you talk about ways in which we can recover yeah. from this and you mention impeachment as as part of that solution. Talk a little bit about what do we do after this to restore our democracy? Mm. Yeah, the after party's gonna be amazing.
1: Well, <laughs> look, you know, I don't like having to have these ideological clashes with fellow American citizens. You know, I come from the counterterrorism world, and here's a fascinating thing that I found. Conservatives will believe every word I say about ISIS. They'll be like, oh, ISIS is going to attack us? Take out their notebook, start taking notes. True story. Donald Trump in August of 2016 told Time magazine the last book he read was my New York Times bestseller, Defeating ISIS. And I was asked, hey, what do you think about that? And I said, it's 548 pages, you know. I said, but you know, he could have been walking by Hudson Books and saw it and goes, defeating ISIS, love it, read it. (laughs) But it goes to to that story. By the way, this is what we do in our rooms with no windows and cipher locks on the door. We just tell jokes all day. (laughs) Top secret jokes that you can't hear. But they will believe every word I say about terrorists. And when I said on August 26, 2016, when I was the first person in news media to come out and say, the United States is under attack. We're under attack right now in an information warfare operation designed to attack our fundamental structure of elections and make Donald Trump president. I have to keep screaming that, okay? And it's cost me. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stress involved in this, but you know, this is what I did as a, for a living. I warned this nation often. And I made sure that you were all aware or the right people were aware of the threats which presented themselves to this nation. Now, I'm sorry, we have an insider threat. And that threat is part of us. Our, the mindset of, of part of our, our fellow citizens have been led to believe that reality is not reality. And that their manufactured reality is reality. And that anything that is outside of their bubble is a trick. And that all they gotta do is shout loud enough and put out whatever they say and agree with each other and that it will become true. That will not happen. But what it will do is it will break this country. So how do we get past this? How do we, I mean, we can't deprogram our neighbors to a certain extent, and I, I make a point of this in the book, the how do we fix it part is very short because it's very simple in some ways. One, we do have to have, an and I recommend it, we have to have an impeachment, if only to recalibrate and make people understand this is serious. I had someone say this to me the other day uh, on my Twitter feed. He goes, you're carrying out a coup. <laughs> and so somebody, some smart aleck, tweeted a picture to me, and it it said, we have found the original coup document plans that have been been disseminated amongst liberals. And it was a picture of the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) 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 And I thought, I'm retweeting that. (laughs) But I did. But it's true. People, you need to each and every one of you, I'm, I'm deputizing you, <laughs> educate people that what we are doing is in the Constitution of the United States, of which every one of us who has served in the armed forces or government have sworn our lives to defend. I love the the, the day that I, I, I raised my hand and swore the same oath that my great-great-grandfather did in, in, in the in Civil War, my great-great-granduncle did in the Indian Wars, and my grandfather and granduncle did in World War I, and my father did when he was 15 and tricked them into believing he was 17 when he joined the Navy in World War II, all right? We believe this oath stuff, but the Constitution is our bedrock, and so the simplest thing that I can ask you to do is stand up for it. Don't say, well, that guy's just crazy. Explain to them that our founding document is what you oppose when you say this is a coup. A coup is violent, uses weapons. It takes off the government and it overthrows that. This is your founding document, Article 1, people. Get with it. And then that confuses them. And then that gives you an opening to say, I believe you still have the right to say what you're saying no matter how misguided and dumb it is. But (laughs) no, honestly, people, we are talking hard reality here. And I don't suffer fools gladly because I don't have time to waste in the defense of this nation. So neither do you. But you are going to have to work hard. We are coming up on the next election. This is it. This is your choice. Everyone who can hear my voice, I am telling you now, as someone who has spent the entirety of my life, trying to protect you. It's your job to protect our nation next year. Easy enough? No. It's easy enough. I don't care who you vote for. But you know what you should be voting for? What you should be thinking is, do I want someone who will lie to me 14 times? Thousand times from the Oval Office. Remember when a tan suit was a tragedy in Washington? <laughs> I don't know, because I bought a tan suit right after I saw that one.
0: So I'm going to give maybe. you some questions that Let's come get on. from the audience. Uh, this one is within the detailed web of finances and the Russian connections, yes. is there a bona fide, absolute smoking gun connection yet to be revealed?
1: Wow. That's, me to, that's asking me to do one, one of my another super analyses, which, by the way, I have never been wrong on Trump Russia. <laughs> Sorry, you can go through the books. Uh, um, is there? Okay, I'm going I'm to give you a quick lesson in intelligence analysis. Um, and it's also uh, a couple of years ago when my book Defe- uh, Plot to Destroy Democracy came out, I had reached number six on the Times bestseller list, and the person under me was Neil deGrasse Tyson. And I thought, and this was July, so it was summer reading season, and I thought, I am never going to knock this guy off. But I did knock some poet named Zora Neale Hurston off, whoever she is, right? (laughs) My my family gave me a lot of grief for that. But I want to go do a little intelligence analysis and astrophysics all at the same time. So I'm stealing Neil deGrasse Tyson's thunder here. When we find intelligence data they make these little patterns that are like a constellation right but what we can see is each one of them has a level of veracity and truth to them that gives us sort of an extension so you have like a little dot and you have these lines of, of sort of like the gravity of the intelligence that you have We may see a lot of stars here and a lot of stars here, all these little dots in the constellation that will draw for me whatever the picture is going to be. But you know what we always can tell? A black hole. We can always tell where there's an absence of information. And what we generally see, like you see in astrophysics, (laughs) poor Neil deGrasse Tyson, we we can see things being pulled into that black hole. So for example, if I were to use um, Deutsche Bank as an intelligence indicator, uh, Deutsche Bank is a company which a bank was the only bank that would ever loan Donald Trump money. Well, it's a truism. He got bank loans from them. He funded projects. They all collapsed. But who bankrolled Deutsche Bank? Well, Deutsche Bank won't tell us. And you know banks don't loan you their money, (laughs) Okay, They loan you somebody else's money. On the, on, the, on the premise that you were gonna make money for them. It's as simple as that. So that's one of those things that's missing. And then when you start tying in Vladimir Putin, all the lovely sayings, you know, nobody knows what happened at Helsinki, Donald Trump siding with Putin and not the, you know, his US intelligence agencies. These are all these planets being pulled into a black hole. The black hole must comprise of something, and it has to be something that is explainable for all of this energy and light that is being pulled down into it that does not appear anywhere. So somewhere there is an event horizon, is what they call it, where you cross into that and you get to the truth. Is Matthew McConaughey on the other side? (laughs) Or is Donald Trump in debt to Vladimir Putin? Because that's what the indicators show. Now, the professionals in the U.S. intelligence community are never going to make that assessment without evidence. The FBI counterintelligence division and their national intelligence people are not going to make that assessment unless a giant pile of evidence falls on their desk, right? And then they're going to run to the photocopy or make 10 copies. Because, and then they're going to turn it over to the Justice Department, whoever that's run by. There must be something. Because I'm writing these books... Which have all of this data, hundreds and hundreds of references, and they all lead to a black hole of unexplainable behaviors in which the President of the United States is not just in thrall with Russia and Vladimir Putin, he is utterly obsequious, okay, which means slavishly devoted to Vladimir Putin. What is it? Is it admiration? of an authoritarian dictator who may have as $100 billion of stolen money? Or is it just admiration that he's the one guy that could get over on Donald Trump and could make him something bigger than the President of the United States after he's President of the United States? I don't know, but I sure as hell need to find out because my nation is at risk as long as this question's not answered.
0: Here's a... You, you, you started to answer this because okay. part, part of it is voting, but name three things we can do to stop Russia from taking over America without firing a shot.
1: Okay, um, the worst thing that they, the thing that they hate, as you saw with my little anecdote about Russia today, is they hate sunlight, okay? All information warfare operations are designed to be fake, and they hate the fact that you determine that they're fake. And the one thing that you can do is call it out. When you see that post on Facebook, just take 10 seconds of your life and say, that's a lie. And you know it's a lie. You know, but I defend your right to believe that lie. But you have to call it out. Take time to defend your turf, which is this country. Vote. Vote. Take 10 people to vote. Have a pizza party after you vote. Right? Find high schoolers. Find university students. Anybody who doesn't. You have to create a crew to go vote. Okay, because that is the real defense of our, our nation. And finally, information, disinformation works in a vacuum due to ignorance. And what you have to do is learn the lessons, find the platforms, uh, you know, um, where disinformation just doesn't work well. People always say, well, what are the sources? You guys are MSNBC. You know, yeah, well, we're a news organization, but BBC's a news organization. They're going to tell you the same thing. okay. I mean, just, you have to go out there and convince people that reality is reality, and it's checkable, and it's quantifiable, and that you may have to do the work for you. But you know, it's gonna be very hard to program your mom and your dad, all right, or your kids, and I've seen it. But you know, you will have to, the best thing that you can do, and I, I, I hope I've emphasized that tonight, is that you're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to gut check and systems check whether they believe in this, the American experiment anymore.
0: And what do you think Russia has planned is for the 2020 election <laughs> in terms of differing from what, what they did in 2016?
1: Well, I, Russia, they're not going to do anything different than 2016. But you know where the real risk is? Um, because Russia is on track. They're doing their game. Donald Trump is assisting them. This whole Ukrainian thing, can I, can I sum this thing up for you in a nutshell? When you have to explain this to the people who are Fox News watchers, he did—he tried to blackmail a foreign leader to cheat in the 2020 election. That's it. And now, he's not only cheating, he's trying to explain away Russia's cheating in the 2016 election. What's that all about? So for the most part, I mean, you have to try to deprogram the people who are around you. And what I fear the most is not Russia. I fear that North Korea, who has a very robust cyber unit, called Bureau 121, will suddenly come out using a third-party nation as a leapfrog platform and will attempt to hack the election directly. Only this time, they will make it look like the Democrats got 5 million more votes and won the Electoral College in order to incite chaos and civil war. That's a viable possibility. Because just imagine you wake up and they say, Joe Biden got... 500,000 votes in a precinct that had 27 people in it, in, you know, in, in rural Maine. How do, you think the, uh, how do you think Donald Trump will take that? Let me tell you, there are people out there who are making crazy noises, and I call on them to stop with the craziness, because this is why we fund SWAT teams, okay? There, there is a way for us to protest in this nation And there's a way for us to get through all of this. But you have to believe that our enemies are enemies because they mean us harm. And they could just throw this election into total turmoil. I don't think the Russians want turmoil. They love chaos as they have it now. But there are other enemies out there. North Korea, Iran, you know, anyone who can hire an intelligence subcontractor. Uh, Fake news now, those Uh, Internet research agency organizations, we find they're popping up everywhere as subcontractors. There may even be one in the city who are doing it for business and personal purposes, where they will go out and they will spread a million bot-driven lies about you. Before you could even wake up, they've already destroyed your business. It's now a new
0: business model. So be prepared. We're running low on time, and I know sure. some of your fans in the audience probably know that your wife passed not too long ago, and just want to s- express our condolences.
1: Well, well, thank you. And for those of you who listened or, or came to the last Commonwealth Club, and, and I'm so glad you mentioned this, because I wanted to, to give a moment uh, of, 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 of at least a little humor <laughs> to this, because I always make people cry <laughs> on the way out, or at least drink when they finish the Commonwealth <laughs> Club. But the last time I was here, I got into a very passionate speech, uh, which I tend to do when I was talking about what I was willing to sacrifice for this nation. And my, my beloved wife Marise was, was sitting in the, the seat next to where my daughter sits now. And I said, I am willing to sacrifice you know, um, my home, my land, my treasure, and my family. And suddenly in the audience, there's like <clears throat> right? And the moderator goes, I think your wife might have something to say about that. And I go, okay, my home, my land. <laughs> but she, she thought that was quite amusing. Uh, but with her passing uh, from ovarian cancer, I really feel like I have sacrificed something. Um, I love this country, but my wife was, she was born in West Lafayette, Indiana, to two French-Canadian parents, and when she went home after age six months, she never came back until she was 42, and she had this ginormous French accent, and when she went to work at the city of Washington, D.C., the first thing they said was, well, we need to see your green card, and she said, no, no, I am an American, I was... Born in Indiana, <laughs> and they were like, "Yeah, yeah, let's see the green card." So, but it—I want to use Marise's American story to illustrate: we are e pluribus unum. We are from many, from, you know, from one that makes one. And I, my wife, was buried in a full military funeral. Just two months ago, um, for those of you who watch MSNBC Navi Jamali the uh, the uh, counterintelligence analyst was the guard of was the uh, officer of the burial detail um, and we buried her in Washington Crossing National Cemetery, which is a, a place that was very dear to me as a Philadelphian. I loved Washington Crossing, I love washington and I said that's where we're going to stay and what is really great is that now when I go visit her, she sits amongst the greatest Americans. The man to her right was a Vietnam veteran who was just a private for a year, and he sits with all the rest who have sacrificed to this nation. The woman who is to her left was a Persian Gulf veteran and, and took her, her own life in a suicide just a year ago. Not even a year ago, this year. And we're losing 22 veterans a day. All right? This is the sacrifice we have offered this nation. And when I go there and I cry my heart out, because I was supposed to be first. And she had a joke that I will always be over you. (laughs) Because that's how they bury your spouses. But now I understand the meaning of that. And I understand what we're fighting for. And I wish that she was along this ride for me. And she is, because she's sitting with my ma, who had seven sons in the military and a husband at one point, uh, who spent her entire life being a Navy wife. My great grandmother, who was the wife of a post traumatic stress disordered World War I veteran, whose job it was was to move bodies, uh, to move ammunition to the battlefield and to move bodies back. And who my ma, who was a saint, called a very disturbed man all right which is my which is you know old black lady talk for this man has trouble <laughs> and i i i i just thought this was fascinating these are women who sacrifice so much military families bear this nation's sacrifice and my own claim to fame and I'll sum up on this really started at msnbc not because i was terrorism analyst but because one day a commentator in front of me insulted a Gold Star family in front of me, and I recalibrated him. <laughs> so, so I want to thank anyone who served, anyone who has a family member, and anyone whose mom and wife or, or grandmother or whoever has has borne these soldiers and and men and women in battle because we are fighting for their souls today. And I do not want to wake up next year and have to explain to my beloved just why we have failed them.
0: And we want to thank you, Malcolm, for, for joining us today. A reminder to the audience that copies of the book, The Plot to Betray America, are available for purchase just outside the theater. And Malcolm will be signing books here on stage in just a minute. If you'd like your book signed, please stay seated for further instructions. I'm John Bolden. On behalf of the Commonwealth Club, thank you for joining us this evening.